Hey everyone, good to be back with you. I hope that you have had a great day and uh, your challenges went well. It was fun to kind of walk around and see some of y'all uh, battling out as teams together. That was fun. Uh, I can tell you, the fellas were merciless in that dodgeball, those dodgeball games. I mean, it's just like no pity whatsoever for our lady friends. And uh, man, I tell you what, I was feeling for you, sisters. I can tell you. Some of those were some beamers straight to the face. And uh, good night. Hey, listen, we're going to continue our look at uh, what the scriptures speak about when it speaks about God making all things new. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles tonight to uh, a passage that you likely looked at a lot last year. But I'm going to ask you to turn to the New Testament epistle of 1 Peter. That is Peter. Uh, Peter has, he has two epistles. There's a first one and a second one. And it's the Peter that followed Jesus, one of his closest disciples. I want you to turn there. We're going to read chapter 2, a little bit of chapter 2, kind of focusing on really only two verses tonight. We, uh, we're going to read more than two. I'm going to ask you to read verses 9 through 12 with me, but we're really going to focus in on verses 11 through 12. Um, I want to remind you where we have been so far. We have been saying all week long that God is the God that makes all things new. And that because He is, He is the one that makes not only us new, but He is the one that makes the world new. And tonight, I would like to explore for a little bit of time together with y'all, that if these things are true, that if it is true that God is the God who makes all things new, what's the big so what? What's the big, okay, great, now what? Um, how now do we live? That, that would be another great question to kind of frame it out with. And I think that the book of 1 Peter is a wonderful book on the whole to begin to answer that question. But our text tonight really, I think, hones in on it. So I, the way I want to try to frame it tonight is, is that this tonight is our new purpose. That if, that if your destiny is sealed uh, with Christ, with, by Christ and His work for us, and His work for us opening up as we saw last night, that new heavens and new earth that is coming, then by default... De facto, as a consequence, you now have a new reason for living. A new reason, raison d'etre. You know what I mean? The idea of a new reason for life. And the idea is, is that if this is true of you, whether you like it or not, that's the key. Whether you like it or not, you have a new purpose. This is your new calling in the world. And that's what we're going to explore together tonight. So, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, I'm going to read four verses. We're going to focus on two of them. Let's read them together as I, um, as I read out loud and you follow along in your Bibles there, beginning in verse 9. Hear now God's word given to us, given to us in love. We would do well to listen to it. Let's read together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you, may, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together and ask Him to help us to understand His Word to us tonight. Our Father in Heaven, we come to You today perhaps tired, worn out. Uh, the things from the week are beginning to take your toll on us, and so we need Your help. Lord, many of us have been wrestling with the topic of making all things new. We've been longing for some practical application. We've been longing for the question of, okay, great, so now what? And here your word speaks to us. And we ask that you would, by your Spirit, come, and that you would open up our hearts and our minds that we might understand what you have done for us in Jesus, and that our hearts might be captured this evening to love you, to love others, our neighbors, well, for the rest of our days. That's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, a story that I love to share as we think about these sorts of themes is uh, a few years uh, after the age that most of you are at right now, when I was a student at the University of Tennessee, uh, this event that happened sort of made me feel awesome and ashamed all at once, and I cannot wait to share it with you. Uh, my senior year in college, I roomed with a friend of mine. His name was Benson. And uh, Benson was a Christian, and we, we connected through the ministry of RUF. But Benson was a good friend. But what I, what I thought was super cool about him, if I'm being honest, a little bit of a friend crush, is that he played football for the University of Tennessee the year the one, they won the national championship, which was the fall of 1998. I know I'm dating myself supremely in this. But here's what happens. Uh, usually, at the, at the end of every game, because he was my roommate, I would meet him where the players would come out and then we would go and get pizza or hang out somewhere and celebrate the victory that year. Um, but on this particular night, because it was homecoming, uh, it, was, it was really tradition at Tennessee to uh, wear a coat and tie to the game. So you would wear a coat and tie to the game, you'd sweat all the way through it for three or four hours, and then, uh, and then you'd go, you know, go home or whatever else. But on this particular occasion, I had my coat and tie on, and I went down to meet uh, my friend and a couple other players on the team as they were coming out after their locker room deal. Now, here's the thing you have to know. If you were a player for the University of Tennessee, you always had to wear a coat and tie. Okay? Now, this is where it gets really fun. So I'm there waiting for my friends, and along there waiting with me are all of these little kids with, like, footballs and, like, you know, pictures of the team and the whole deal. And they're there with their Sharpie markers as the team is coming out for them to sign autographs for the for their, you know, on their deal. You probably can guess where this is going. So as I'm waiting around, the players are coming out, and I see my buddy. I mean, all, all, the, all the kids are beginning to sort of circle around them and the whole deal. But some of the kids didn't know that I did not walk out of the locker room with them. You see where I'm going? And... Uh, and so, without fail, uh, it, was, it happened on numerous occasions where some little kid would hand me his football with the, the marker. Now, I realize that in that moment, I have a choice to make. <laughs> but you cannot let kids down, y'all. You cannot do this. You just can't do that. So, somewhere... In some kids, you know, shrine the University of Tennessee football with autographs like Jamal Lewis and like, you know, Peerless Price, these NFL players, Travis Stevens, Travis Henry, is Ryan Anderson's signature. <laughs> I signed that with pride, y'all. That was a great moment. But it highlights something, doesn't it? 
and highlight something. What does it highlight? That there is often a real disconnect between what one appears to be and what one really is. There is often a massive disconnect between what one appears to be and who one really is. And I know it's humorous, but for Peter, let me tell you this, it's of the utmost importance. And I'd like to show you why. You see, in verses 9 through 10, Peter spends a good deal of ink, as it were, loading up his readers by telling them who they are. You saw it there. They are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Verse 10 tells us that they are a people who have received mercy, having not had that mercy prior in their lives. They are a a mercy-flooded people, as it were. This is who Peter wants his readers to remind them of who they are. This is what defines them. But that's not all that defines them. For Peter says that part of that new identity is a new and certain future as well. For if you were to read back into chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he says this in verse 3, According to His great mercy, He, that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection. Their future, their end, is what we have explored in the nights before. There is a new goal for them, a new horizon that ought to color their lives in the present. All of this is theirs. It is part of that identity. And for those who are in Christ today, this is our hope as well. But this is also for us a call to examine our lives in the present in light of that new identity that we have, which most certainly includes that future hope that we have been born into. Peter therefore cautions us about our way of life being in contrast to who we really are. Put, point, point, put blankly, are we signing autographs that we shouldn't be signing? You see what I mean by this? And therefore Peter is urging us in these verses a, toward a life of congruence with who we are lining up with how we live. Peter is urging a life of congruence with who we are to match up to how we live. And, and frankly, friends, to live with that discongruity, right? That, 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 this, that life of separateness there is to live a life of faking, a life of posing. Because it makes sense. If you're really a Christian, if you really have this hope of yours, do you understand to live contrary to that is actually to live a disingenuous life? Maybe you've never considered that. But we're going to consider that tonight. And here's what I want you to see. Now that we know our future, that we know our great hope and end, what does it look like to live in the present in light of that great end? Peter knows his readers like you and me, y'all, are tempted to live lives inconsistent with who we truly are in Christ. And so this evening, Peter is instructing Christians on how to live faithfully in difficult social and cultural circumstances, especially knowing the future that is in store for them. He reminds them and us that since God has made us distinct people with a distinct future hope, we ought to live beautiful, compelling, magnetic lives. You see, in short, Peter is showing us that new people with a new place have a new purpose in life. And so Peter shows us three ways that we might live purposefully in the world today. They're on your sheet there. First, to live as... 
Secondly, to live among. And thirdly, to live for. And I'd like to show you from the text where I get that. Let's begin with living as. This first point that I want to make. Turn your eyes to verse 11, the first part of it there, where it says this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh. You see, continuing with what he began in verses 9 through 10, Peter continues to remind his readers of who they are, a new identity with which they find themselves, having been born again into that living hope. And in Peter's mind, if you don't know who you are, if you don't know who you are, you simply won't know how to live. You cannot separate them. You won't have the resources to be able to do, to do so. And so Peter, as we saw, calls them exiles. And adding to this, sojourners. Now, what were exiles and sojourners? Exiles were people who were strangers in the land where they lived. You know what I'm talking about? You see, exiles did not hold citizenship in the place that they found their current life existing, within the country that they lived in, because they knew their true country was somewhere else. Additionally, and this falls as a consequence of that, that they did not receive as exiles and didn't expect all of the benefits that come with the country in which they lived. And they were not expected to hold to the norms and to the values of that culture. Instead, this is Peter's point, they lived lives consistent with the values of their true citizenship in the present age. And why would Peter say this? Because he knows that their true citizenship, their true home, is somewhere else. They simply are not home yet. And yet, living as exiles and sojourners is not something that Peter is ticked off about. He doesn't say, let's live like sticks in the mud and start a culture war. No, he just states it as a matter of fact. He doesn't say to be reactionary. He just assumes it about what it means to be a Christian. We don't seek necessarily to be marginal or to be marginalized, but we're certainly not surprised when we are. This is more profound, friends, than I think we know. You know this if you've ever traveled to a foreign country. Have any of you ever done that, having been an American citizen? You know, you go and travel somewhere else. I mean, you just know it. Like, you're, the food, the smells, the, the sights and the sounds are just radically different. I can remember traveling for a few months in the, the country of New Zealand. And I was shocked that people never wore their shoes anywhere. I mean, I remember going to the mall and people were walking around barefoot. Grocery store, barefoot. It's just a beach culture. And that's how they sort of live their lives. And I was like, wow, I really am an outsider here with my with my flip-flops on. You know what I mean? Well, the point is, is this. I want you to notice that what Peter is saying is that we live as exiles in this present world. And therefore, there are a few things that we can begin to apply this into our lives. One, to feel like exiles, even in our own country of birth. Peter is saying this, that our true home is elsewhere, and therefore, there ought to be a little bit of a, a, a rub even in your present life. You see what I'm saying by that? That for you to be a Christian in this day and age, if this is your true home, there will be a rub in your life in minor and perhaps major ways that you say, yeah, my life just doesn't look like that because I'm an exile. Because my hope is set somewhere else. And it doesn't matter if you're a child 
If you're a teenager, a college student, an adult, a retiree, it's always going to be like that. You simply aren't home yet. And so the question that comes to you is this. How does your life reflect that rub? As a 15, 16, 17, 18 year old, how does your life reflect in this present age? What does that look like for you? Have you ever considered that? Or is life in your present world, does it just go on swimmingly? With no contrast, with no rub? It's a great question, I think, for us to consider. And secondly, this means also that you're going to live with an ache of sorts. You know what I mean by that? You're going to live with an ache for your true country. You live in a world of sin. Of sin. You live in a world of sorrow. You live in a world where parents get divorced. Where friends even die. You live in a world where things that you didn't anticipate in your young lives do in fact come. And it's a product of not being yet in your true country. Do you sense that ache? That is what Peter is trying to show us as well. The last thing I want to say is, is this. The more and more I pastor people, especially those who maybe get converted in the teenage years and on, which certainly is your demographic, the one refrain I hear over and over again from people who get converted from non, a non-Christian life into following our Lord, and Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus is this. They have no place for Christians who actually don't live distinct lives. You see what I'm getting at? They're not turned on at all by Christians who, who claim to follow Jesus and their life just doesn't look distinct. Because they're going, well, what's the point? Anybody can do that. So to live with distinct lives actually means that as we're going to see in a moment, we'll actually catch the eyes of folks. And it's meant to draw them up in, further up and further in, into the worship of our Lord. We'll see that in a moment. I love what C.S. Lewis puts, how he puts it. He says this, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that's really true, friends. Peter is saying living as exiles and sojourners is to live with a longing ache for our true home. And that is part of our new purpose that we have. So in light of this, it would be easy to think, I think, that Peter is saying, pull away from the world around you. Have nothing to do with it. But Peter won't let us get away with that for one moment. He says quite the opposite. He not only is telling us to live as sojourners and exiles, but also to live among. This is my second point. To live among. And what do I mean? Well, let's see it. It's right there in the text. Peter tells us, turn your eyes to verse the back half of 11 and the first part of 12, where it reads as follows. Abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct. It's another way of saying keep your way of life among the Gentiles honorable. Now, a quick nomenclature thing here. In a, a, a Jew's mind, which Peter most certainly was, there was one distinction with all people groups. You had the Jewish people, those people who descended from Father Abraham that we often sang about when we were kids, and everybody else who didn't. Those were the Gentiles. And so if you were not Jewish, you were a Gentile. And what Peter is saying, I want you to live as God's people among and in and around folks who do not believe the things that you believe. I want you to do life in the midst of people who do not agree with you about the ultimate conclusions that you make in life. He is saying, I want you to live among 
non-Christians. People who do not confess the triune God. This is what he is saying. And he does so by showing us two ways to do that. First, we see it in 11 where it says this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. But up above, he says, abstain from the passions of your flesh. So this first idea of abstaining, to keep away from. Now, Peter, when he says abstain from the flesh, he's not talking about bodily things necessarily, like food and or sex, as if those things are are bad by the fact that they exist. That's not what he's saying. When he uses the word flesh, he is referencing that part of us are those out-of-whack desires that we have. Where we love good things simply too much. When we give our hearts and our lives over to things that are really good, but we pop them up on the priority list and give pole position in our hearts, not to God, but to these things. They can be anything, really. They can be video games. They can be sexual relationships. But it can also be intangible things like this, like your approval of other people. The longing for comfort in your life, that you would just have an easy life. These are the sorts of things that belong to that old man, that old life, the the old life that is passing away, that Peter is calling the flesh. You see, it happens when we make really good things, things that God has given to us, the most important thing. But secondly, you notice this. How do we live among? Secondly, by maintaining. So it's abstaining and secondly, maintaining. And you saw that there by the language of keep in verse 12. Peter shows us a second way that we're to live among. That we are to keep a way of life. A conduct, that's what he says there. A way of life in which you actively live. And what's what's the character of that? He says this. He says, I want you to live a way of life that is honorable in the ESV. But that word can be translated many different ways. It could be translated as as good uh, in the moral sense. It could be translated as uh, attractive or compelling. And I like the word beautiful. To live beautiful lives. Lives that demonstrate the beauty of our Savior. The beauty of our calling. Peter is saying that this is what it's meant to look like. He wants us to live in such a way that the everyday warp and woof of our lives would be noticed and compelling to those who are even against us. Now, do you know what this means? If we put what I've said just a moment ago, what I'm saying now together, it means that our lives will always be marked by some degree of tension. You see, on the one hand, we'll live as exiles. We'll live distinct lives. Lives of holiness. Lives that reflect the character of our good king. And yet, over here, the other half of that tension will be, we simply are not free to pull our lives away from those who do not live the same way that we do. So, we won't live like the world around us does in how we treat one another. We simply won't use our tongues the same way that other folks do. We will think about the way that we use our money the way that we use our bodies, radically different than the way the world around us does. And how we think about our time and the goals and the purposes of our lives, those will all be radically different. And as I mentioned, we're not free to pull away either. So one writer calls this, this is a big term, but I'm going to give you an easy one as well. There will always be, as one commentator put it, a differentiated engagement. If you don't like that term, i got something better for you. Jesus just simply calls it 
being salt of the earth and being the light of the world. And all, I think, are very helpful. Now, at this point, someone might be saying, Ryan, you don't understand. The culture that we live in is so dadgum hostile to the gospel. And those who hold on to it, how in the world can we possibly be expected to live among? But I just don't think that that retreatist mentality holds up. And here's why. You see, Peter, when he was writing, he was writing into a world that was at least as set against, if not more so, those who follow Christ than we are today. And yet we have evidence that the early Christians, this time frame with Peter was writing, this is probably composed somewhere in the early 60s A.D. I don't mean like 1960s, I mean the original 60s, okay? That's what he's getting at, okay? That those who follow Christ are today. And yet we have evidence that early Christians, which certainly included Peter's audience, that they lived lives where the surrounding culture found their way of life two things, both comprehensible and yet distinct. It was understandable. The way, the nature of their life, the conduct that they lived was comprehensible. I get that. That's what that's what I'm trying to say. And yet it was radically distinct as well. Let me show you real, real quick. Let me tell you why I think that era was a lot more hard, hard, for, hard for them than it is for you and me today. You see, this is really close, most scholars say, to the emperor Nero's reign. And you know what? Nero was a wicked emperor. And one of the things that Nero liked to do for sport and for fun was to take Christians, to dip them in pitch, boiling pitch, which is a flammable material, and then impale Christians on stakes and light them on fire for what purpose? Lighting up his parties at night. That's the sort of stuff that Christians were uh, subjected to when Peter was writing this letter. Every far more hostile than the culture we live in today. But here's the thing that I want you to see. The people around Peter's audience, and for you and me, they, these lives were comprehensible and distinct. And I'd like to show you this from one early document in the early part of the church. In the year 130 A.D., so my math's a little shaky on this, 65 to 70 years later, there was a piece of literature called the Epistle to Diognetus. It's a big fancy word, you don't remember that. And this is a letter that answers false charges to how Christians live their lives. And the writer, the unknown author, responds and notes these things. That Christians refuse to worship the many gods of the Roman Empire. Now that would have been a distinct thing. You see that? That would have been something different than the culture would have gone into. And yet, at the same time, they were not distinguished, Christians were, from the rest of humanity, by country, language, and custom. That means they didn't have their own country. They didn't have their own language. And they did not practice an eccentric way of life. So they looked a lot like the surrounding culture. Similarly, they followed the local customs of dress and of food and of other ways of life. But they demonstrated the remarkable and admitted unusual character of their own citizenship in heaven. Friends, this is what I'm trying to show you. It was early Christianity's ability to hold an important tension which both included similarity and distinction that made it both unique, and here it is, that contributed to its growth. And brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to see. That this is exactly what the Apostle Peter is telling to us. When you live distinct, compelling, beautiful lives 
among those who are different from you, you are living out of your future hope. You're living out of that future hope. Life as it should be. So what's the practical application here? It's, it's a thousandfold, y'all. I mean, do you have non-Christian friends? Do you have people in your life that don't know Jesus, that you live a distinct life in front of, as it were, yet you love radically, yet you maintain the way of life that Jesus has called you to? That's a great question for all of us to consider, present company included. You see? So it, I love the book of 1 Peter because it's incredibly practical for our day and age. But here's what people, Peter also wants to show us. He also shows us the goal for which exiles and pilgrims live these beautiful lives. What does he tell us? Well, thirdly, we look at our last point here. This idea of living for. And it's the last half of verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, Peter says. And then you probably see something in there that says, so that... And that means for the purpose that, or for the end, or the goal that. Here it is. That when they, that is those who do not agree what you believe, when they speak evil against you as evildoers, when they call you evildoers, when they malign you, when they curse you, when they slander you, when they say you're crazy for following this man Jesus, that they, that is those who you live among, may see your good deeds. And come to glorify God on the day of visitation. In their book, Winsome Persuasion, authors Tim Uhlhoff and Richard Langer tell the story of a young British boy. He was kidnapped by marauders. Now, I don't know if we have marauders around anymore these days. Maybe we do. But the child eventually escaped from this imprisonment and went back years later to those who held him captive to tell them about Jesus. His name was Patricius, but you know his Anglicanized name as St. Patrick. You see, unlike the Egyptian monasteries in his day and age, which were reclusive and in the desert, Patrick would set up monasteries on the edges of these towns that he would go to. And as the authors note, Patrick, he arrived with 12 companions and a simple plan. He would approach a tribal chief to seek his conversion or at least permission to form a community of faith adjacent to that settlement. Here it is. The team would then become involved in the life of that community, engaging them in conversation and acts of service such as mediating disputes and tending the sick. Those who were responsive to the gospel would join that apostolic band and worship with them. If God blessed the efforts, they would even plant a church there. And friends, this is a fantastic picture of living as, living among, and living what Peter shows us lastly, to live for. Living as salt, as light, means that we live with a purpose, with a goal in mind, and Peter tells us what it is. He says, I want you to live in such a way that when those around you see your lives, that because of them, that is your lives, they would come to glorify God. That by observing your lives, that they would see it. And through conversations about the way that you live your lives, your non-Christian friends would come to praise the God that you praise. 
Later in the book of 1 Peter, Peter is going to say that our words, that our verbal defense of the faith is a profound apologetic for people coming to know Christ. But Peter tells us here, do you know it's almost, it's probably likely more powerful? The way you live your life. The way you live your life. The way you live your life. Peter is saying that when you begin to do that, that would be the process by which those who don't know God would continue, would come to glorify Him. Peter says, the things, your lives, they now speak evil against will be the very thing that God uses to have them come to a saving knowledge of Himself, glorifying Him when He comes. Now there is much that can be parsed out of this, but one is, to be, is one thing in particular, that our lives are about a, a participation in God's great mission. This was the case for St. Patrick, and it is for you and me as well, because it has always been that way. Think back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham and says, Go, go into a country that you don't know. Worship me, know me, and through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and I will build a people through the nations, through and of the nations through you. And listen, I just want to sort of pause on this for a moment and tell you a little bit back about my friend Benson. I mentioned him at the beginning of the sermon about the football player. He invited me, I was a biology student with him, and he simply invited me to come live with him and be his roommate. He, he knew that I was not walking with Jesus. But he risked. And he put his, his friendships on the line, and he began to just love me. Now, I'll never forget one Tuesday night, he asked me if I wanted to go to this thing called RUF. I said, what is it? He said, well, we sing some songs. God stands up and talks about Jesus. I said, no thanks. Sounds too religious and Jesus-y for me. He said, no problem, man. I totally get it. You, want to, you don't mind if people come back, after the, back afterwards to our uh, apartment to hang out, do you? And I said, no, I don't mind one bit. It's your house as well. And week after week, this would happen. Week after week, those eight or ten individuals who come back over my, over my apartment and just welcome me back in, welcome me into their fellowship. And eventually, I landed going to RUF. I thought, the, I thought the music was crazy, and so I showed up 30 minutes late every week. But you know what happened? God used that. And because of that, I'm standing here before you today. All because of a friend who lived a distinct life, who wanted to love me where I was at, who knew when to talk about Jesus. And if you were talking to him this day, he would say, man, I didn't think I was doing any of that. I, I, I thought I was screwing things up. That's likely how it will be. God will use your weaknesses. God will use your failures. God will use the things that you think that you are just, you know, you're not crushing it in to be able to draw people to him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because see, if you don't, you don't understand what you don't understand what your purpose is. You don't understand the way that God has set up his mission. He is saying you've got a new future. You've got a new hope. And because of that, you live distinct lives. Now let me say this really, really quickly for some of you, because you need literal courage put into you. So I'm going to use the word you need encouragement. You see, most of us don't need more instruction on how to live the Christian life. We simply need more courage to be able to go out and live it. And I want to challenge all of you tonight. 
I want to challenge every single one of you to ask, to do a gut check and to say, if I believe that this gospel is true, if I believe that this is something that is real and the thing that most defines my life, I do want you to wrestle with the question, how does my life reflect what I say to be most true about me? Or do I live in such a way that gives utter disregard to the gospel itself? That's the, I really want to press in with you on that because it's a hard age to do that. I remember. It is hard. And yet I want to blow, fan into flame to say, remember your King. He loves you. He has given you His Spirit to aid you in following Him. And He will be with you when you think the world around you thinks you're uncool because you follow Jesus. To live this way is what Jesus says will be the way that people come to know Him. That is what's so profound about this here. So the question I already asked before you, do I really love those who believe and behave differently than I do? And do I have non-Christian friends in my life? Here's just some things to maybe consider. I, I, I would urge you to risk being seen as uncool by inviting someone new to hang out with you on a Friday night. I'll invite you to risk by sitting with someone new at lunch. Risk by trying something like community theater to where you might be able to be around people who do not believe what you believe. These and a thousand other options are avenues which we can be around non-Christians. I love what one pastor challenges us with. Receiving God's grace is free. Extending it to others is going to cost you. And that's really, really true. You see, y'all, here's what I want you to see. How do we know, though, that God will help us to live this way? To live as, to live among, to live for our new purpose? Because of this, y'all. Because there was one who came to live for us. To live among us. And to live as us. You see, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. The Word became flesh and lived and dwelt among us. His life was utterly distinct and yet absolutely magnetic. The messiest of the messy. The social outcasts and even the self-righteous were drawn into Him and they melted in repentance and joy in His presence. And the result, they came to glorify God. And how could a holy God receive, actually receive outsiders, sinners, men and women separated from Him because of their sin? Men and women who wanted nothing to do with Him because He came not only to live as one of us, not only to live among us, not only to live among us, He did what? He came to die as one of us. He came to die among us and to die for us. And the degree that you, to which you see Jesus doing that for you, Jesus the exile par excellence, doing that for you, you, and all of your screwed up life, in all the ways that you don't deserve grace, and yet the Father smiles on you, with thy favor, loss is gain, we just sang tonight. That favor you have, when you see that, you will be able to do it for Him as well. One pastor tells the story, and I close here, of how a particular parishioner ended up at his church. After the sermon one day, the woman came up to him. I have to tell you how I came to this church. He said, okay. 
About a month ago, she said, I screwed up big at work. And I should have gotten fired because of it. But when I came into work the next day, terrified that I was losing my job, which as a single mother would have ruined my life, I learned that my boss took the blame for my mistake. And with his credibility and tenure within the company, all he got was a reprimand. So I went to him and I said, how in the world? How did you do this? Why, did you, why would you do this for me? I've had a lot of bosses in my life that took credit for the work that I did, but I've never had a boss who took the blame for my mistake. Why would you do this? Well, the man responded, well, you're a great employee, and I really enjoyed having you around. I know you didn't mean it, and I know you'll be faithful in the future moving forward. And she said, no, 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 no. Why? Why would you do this for me? Why would you do this? And he said, do you really want to know? She said, yes. And he said, okay. Well, I'm a Christian. And I go to this church where we talk and sing and pray about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ all the time. We say that Jesus took the blame for me when I wanted nothing to do with Him. He gave Himself for me. And that changes our lives to go out into the world and not just in light of it, but model it for other people. And she asked this, what kind of church is that? And the man responded, one that lives for heaven in this world. And that is why I'm here today. High school friends, what if there really was a community of high school students who were so in tune with who they really were and the great future that awaited them that they lived beautiful lives like this? Because of what Jesus has done in His life, death, and resurrection, this is exactly what He has made for us to be. It gives us all that we need to be able to do so. Let's pray. And let's ask God to make us into this sort of people. Our Father in Heaven, we ask that You would make us to live beautiful lives. That we would live in line with our truest identity. That we would live in line as sojourners and exiles to live among those people who do not agree and do not see life the way that we do, even those folks who will speak evil against us, unto the great end, that they would come to know You and glorify You. This is who we are. This is who we were made to be. Would You give us the courage and the strength and would You put the Gospel deep in our hearts that we might be able to do that. I pray that for all of us, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to not sing any more songs, so I'm going to turn the mic over to Patrick. Thank you all for being such great listeners.